My name is Jimmy. I am one of the pastors here. If you were not here at the start of service, it is good to be with you. If you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 5 is where we will be continuing our study this morning, Acts chapter 5. So let me say it's, this will be two Sundays. I was not here. I was different parts of the country. We took a small uh, team of eight from our church and served with a like-minded Pillar Network church in South Carolina two weeks ago. I preached there on that Sunday, but uh, thank you for those who gave so that other people could go. Um, some of you did that, but overall, uh, the Hill Church um, represented the, the Lord Jesus in South Carolina very well. That came from my perspective, but more importantly, that came from Pioneer Church and the pastor there. Uh, we did evangelism training with their church. We went out, did some evangelism with their church in the neighborhood, promoted an event that they were having, helped them put the event on. Um, our team served really well. We had very little time to do anything but serve the Lord Jesus, which was a great trip. So just thank you for that. And then last Sunday I was able to uh, be up in Virginia to see our brother Reed and our sister Lauren uh, get married. And it was a joy to do that service, oversee it, and celebrate with them. Uh, so it was a joy. But I'm so glad to be back. Um, just listening to you guys sing that last song together. I miss this place every time I am away. And miss doing this with you, opening up the Word. So it's a joy. And one of those things that made the trip so sweet, I think, to the... Uh, East Coast was that we did it. Uh, I didn't really think about this until we got there, but this time of the year with the changing of the seasons, um, my wife and I, we actually flew into Pittsburgh before the wedding to visit actually a really good friend of ours who's another, who, a really good friend of ours who is another pillar pastor, uh, pastoring and planting a church in Pittsburgh. We spent a few days, a day and a half with them. We rented a car and then we made the four hour drive from Pittsburgh through West Virginia up to uh, Northern Virginia for the wedding. And Man, what a beautiful drive that was. The, the, the orange, yellow, red colors were, were really everywhere in the skyline as you drove through. And it was, it was incredible, honestly. But the, the beauty of the, the color of the mountains served as a reminder, maybe not to me because I got to drive out of there, but to those who live in that part of the country, that change is coming. Uh, the transitional season is underway. It's about to be winter and it's about to be really cold. So I'm glad I left. We... We in San Diego know very little of uh, transitioning seasons in San Diego. Our temperatures fluctuate, about 25 degrees is about it. Uh, we're spoiled in that way. We know very little of transitional seasons unless you consider droughts in uh, fire season to be one. But as we turn our attention to our study again in Acts chapter 5 this morning, or just the book of Acts as a whole, we've been thinking about how transition is really at the heart of this book. Okay. In fact, the, the book of Acts concerns, we might say, the most significant transitional moment in redemptive history, and one in which the prophets of old looked forward to, pointed to. The prophets spoke of a day when God would do, a, he would do a new work amongst His people. He would pour out His Spirit in a new way. He would make a new covenant with them. And in that new covenant, He would gather His people from all nations of the earth. So following the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, He ascended, the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven and He poured out His Spirit at Pentecost, marking really the dawning of this new transition, this new age, and the empowerment of His people to spread this message of forgiveness and restoration to all people started in Jerusalem. And the transitional moment, or that transitional moment, is the concern of this book. 
And maybe similar to autumn leaves, the dawning of this new age of the Spirit meant the death of the previous age. And this would not happen without struggle, without conflict. Since chapter 3, the center of this conflict, as we're going to see this conflict unfold throughout the book of Acts, but the center of that conflict from chapters 3 until the end of chapter 5 has been with the old temple system and its leadership and with the church and the new leadership of the apostles. And this conflict, we might say, comes to a, a boil. It comes to a peak this morning in our text. What we learn from that is this, that through rejoicing and suffering, God's kingdom advances by the power of His ongoing presence in His people, in His church. So through rejoicing and suffering, God's kingdom advances by the power of His ongoing presence in His people. Given the, the, the length of our text today, I won't read it in its totality to begin with. We will read and go through the entire text. We won't do that at the beginning. So let me pray as I usually do after the reading of God's Word, and then we're going to read the Word as we go along this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for this time to open Your Word. And, and God, we come to a, maybe a familiar section of Scripture for some of us, um, but Lord, an important one. We're going to be confronted with the leadership of Israel, which is going to confront us with the issue of pride, jealousy, selfish ambition, self-glory. And Lord, something we all struggle with. Something that keeps us all from experiencing the power of the kingdom of God in our lives. So God, I pray as we see this confrontation here, we see the power of you at work amongst your people, Lord, we would trust you. We would be diligent to demolish pride in our lives so that we might too be used for your kingdom purposes in this world. God, our time, in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, Pastor Bob dealt with the first 11 verses of this chapter. And the first 11 verses is the, uh, the scene where the church is really tested. Uh, it had experienced, up until this point, the church had experienced kind of external pressure, we might say. But for the first time, they experience conflict internally within the body through the actions of Ananias and Sapphira. And due to God's concern for the purity of His church, His swift and stern judgment came and shook the people, it said. The final verse of that little narrative there in 1-11, through 11, the verse that immediately precedes the text this morning we're going to unpack, says this, it concluded there, that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Chapter 5, verse 11. What we see here is that this was a serious thing and this was a public thing. People knew about it. And the question we were left with is what does this mean for the new community? Had the promise of God's blessing been lost? Would this great power and presence of God received at Pentecost fizzle out amongst the people of God? Would the reins of God's kingdom purposes be removed from the hands of the apostles? And with those questions kind of swirling in the background in the air, Luke picks up in verse 12 this morning, and he paints a scene of confirmation we begin with. So we begin first with what I'm calling power confirmed in the first 12 verses there, 12 through 17. We're provided... Another summary, we're getting used to these now, where Luke will kind of stop and give us a summary of the church at work in the book of Acts. This is the third or fourth one we've seen. 
But in this placement here is strategic, really strategic, following the previous events. So while the apostolic signs and wonders presented here, they do lack maybe the detail of the previous chapters with the raising of uh, or the healing of the blind man of the uh, of the beggar there. Their scope and their magnitude, though, are strategically emphasized in an even greater degree, which serve as confirmation that the power promised and poured out at Pentecost remains upon God's people. And in particular, the apostles, their leaders. Look at verse 12. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly, notice that word, done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared, or none of them dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick in the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed, the text says. Now, let's not forget what's being described here as an answer to prayer. Following the apostles' arrest, their first imprisonment, back in chapter 4, remember the church corporately gathered together and they prayed for spiritual power. They prayed that that God would grant them to continue to speak His word with boldness while He stretched out His hand to heal and that signs and wonders be performed through His name. That was their prayer. And that request is here confirmed. And its description or its confirmation, the description of it, is really even heightened in the narrative. Regularly, Luke says, an important word, many signs and wonders were being performed openly before all the people. Verse 16 even speaks of the sick and afflicted being gathered from all the towns around Jerusalem and all them being healed. And then verse 15 even describes a very interesting scene with streets lined with people on cots and mats hoping that Peter's shadow might cast over them and they be healed. Fascinating scene is described here. Now, I think in one sense this image is probably not as important as we may, tempt, as we may be tempted to think. So like this is not a scene from a Benny Hinn crusade with Peter having some sort of mystical aura about him and he's just walking by slaying people or something like that. No, shadow speaks to presence here. Okay, uh, to be in the shadow of one simply meant to be in one's presence. We see that in the other places in the Bible. We say they would be in the shadow of the person. That means they're in the presence of the person. The apostles had been given the power to heal. That was clear. It says here that the apostles were doing these things at the hands of the apostles. That's important. So the sick and the afflicted desired to be in the apostles' presence, and 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 word had spread fast that it was that as it did in Jesus' day, so many had come. What Luke's really doing here, if we were to go back and look at many other scenes in the gospel narratives, this is a scene very similar to Jesus. The scenes that that Jesus walked into a town and many came from all over and were healed is a similar scene being here. The confirmation of the apostles being linked to Jesus and his ministry are here. But in another sense, this image, I think it is communicating something very important. So I don't want to kind of move us away from it a bit, but then pull us in closer. Luke has used this word in its verb form twice in his gospel, the the gospel of Luke, to speak of the overshowering of of God's presence. So speaking of the birth of Jesus to Mary the angel, Luke chapter 1 verse 35, it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High 
will overshadow you. There's the word. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration, we are told that a cloud came over the disciples and overshadowed them, from which the Lord Himself spoke, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. So this image here of the shadow over Peter serves as confirmation of God's presence remaining upon His people, especially the apostles here. Luke wants us to see. He wants us to be very clear. The incident with Ananias and Sapphira did not diminish God's presence in any way amongst the people. It really served to promote it, he's saying, and to clarify the seriousness of his presence amongst his people. Look at verse 13, which is an odd verse. None of the rest, or maybe you have no one there, dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So following God's judgment, there seems to be a, a somber seriousness that marked the people. Like joining into this group was not done in any, any flippant manner. It was not a light thing. But it also says that it caused them, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 11, people knew about this event. Now it says that the people around them held them in high esteem. So they understood here. But the result of all this is in verse 14. Look at it. Luke's language is important. And more than ever. You see that phrase? And more than ever. Believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. That's what Luke wants us to see in this section. More than ever, the gospel message is being believed. Again, I want you to take note. that We see this pattern all throughout Acts. Miracles serve the message of Jesus. God's power displayed through signs and wonders paves the way for God's power of salvation to be preached and received. God's power is at work in His people through the proclamation of His Word. That's what Luke's confirming here. And this all comes on the heels of this serious judgment in the church. So God's disciplining hand amongst His people. If you're a believer this morning, God's disciplining hand in your life is never meant to hurt you. It's meant to refine you. It's meant to form you. To take part in what God has for you. And that's what is being accomplished here. But this text also serves to really set up a contrast that shapes this entire narrative going forward. I've said to you before, Luke is a brilliant writer. And he's going to weave all kind of irony and all kind of tra- uh, contrasting things before us. And he's, he's making a point here. Remember the conflict in the narrative has been between the old temple leadership and the new leadership of the apostles. And transition is taking place. And the contrast between these two groups could not be stronger. We find the apostles here doing what Jesus was doing. Ministering and displaying the power of the kingdom of God where? Amongst the sick. Amongst the needy. Amongst the afflicted, the outcast. Those who have nothing to give in return. It's a reminder to all of us that need is the qualification for the kingdom. Those who understood themselves to be needy were able to experience the power of the kingdom and were able to to experience and receive the message of the king. Those who see themselves as no need will be left out of the kingdom. But the prideful, religious leaders, the door is going to be slammed in their face because they're pride. 
Their pride, power, and status will not allow them to humble themselves and experience the message of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, no one comes to Jesus middle class in spirit, the Bible says. The kingdom of God is for those who are poor in spirit. Spiritual bankruptcy is the requirement for all of us. We must humble ourselves to come to Jesus. We must guard our hearts regarding pride. Even as we sang that third song this morning, even as Pastor Bob opened with his prayer, uh, that's a glorious gospel truth, and we are to confess that we were rebels. We're redeemed rebels, but we were rebels. And forgetting that reality is where we rise up in pride. We must be careful, brothers and sisters. The gospel message is that Jesus has come for the needy, the sick, the spiritually bankrupt, us. But where power, so power is confirmed here first, but that power is going to be met, as we see over and over again, with heightened opposition. So maybe we can say that'll be our next heading of opposition heightened in verses 18 to 32. And this opposition is going to rise straight from, straight from the top, we see in verse 17. It says, but the high priest rose up, and all of who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. See that word public prison, we'll come back to that. So the contrasting lines are just being filled in even darker here. Luke wants us to see that. Where the apostles are filled with the Spirit, temple leadership is filled with jealousy. Where the power of God rests upon the apostles, the temple leadership is going to prove themselves impotent over and over again. Remember what I said a couple weeks ago. The temple leadership is as lame as the lame beggar who is standing outside. Thousands are responding in faith to the gospel message and being healed, which has filled Jerusalem, verse 28 is going to tell us. And these guys say, we've got to do something about this. In prideful jealousy, they rise up, throwing the apostles in prison a second time. And they do so publicly, verse 18 says. They want to make an example out of them before the people. So in prideful ambition, they flex their political and religious muscles for all to see. But like a toddler in a muscle shirt, their weak arms are about to be displayed. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak, speak to the people all the words of life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now the irony here in the text is comical on Luke's part. Notice he slipped in that this group responsible for throwing the apostles in prison are the party of the Sadducees who, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection and they don't believe in angels. They have a whole doctrinal position how angels don't exist. And yet as soon as they throw the apostles in prison, the angel sets them free and instructs them to go right back into the temple, their very place of authority, where they've been trying to keep the apostles out of and continue to preach the message of the resurrection, the message of life. The very power they're trying to exert to stop this is showing right in their face. As the sun rises, the next day, the apostles are again standing there preaching to the people what they're trying to stop. The gates of hell are storming the church of Jesus Christ, but they ain't prevailing an inch here. And these guys have no clue really what's going on at this point. They're clueless. They think it's all been taken care of. They wake up from their sleep. They gather in their royal robes. They get their crew together thinking, 
We're about to make a decision here. We're going to take a vote. We're going to decide the fate of these apostles, only to learn they can't even find the apostles. It says, Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. They sent to the prison to have them brought. When the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and they reported. They reported, We found the prison securely locked. And the guard standing at the doors. When we opened it, there was no one inside. So the prison guard returns empty. And he says, man, I got good news, bad news. Good news, the prison needs securely locked. They did a good job. The dudes out front are doing their job very well. They're strong. They're, they're, they're doing exactly what they're paid to do. But the bad news is there's nobody in that prison. Now remember, they put the apostles in the public prison. Meaning their release their escape is evident now to everyone. So this whole thing has seriously gone wrong for them. What is meant as, a, as a, a publicity stunt to portray their power now serves to demonstrate and highlight for everyone just how impotent they really are. The religious leader left scratching their heads. It says, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about this, wondering what this would come to. If you notice, Luke's used that language multiple times to refer to them. These are the guys who have all the religious answers, remember? They, they know all what's going on. They, they're the religious leaders, but yet they're perplexed. They're confused. And all their hope is shattered in, ver- in the next verse. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force this time. They were afraid of the people stoning them. So it's worse than they actually thought. Not only have they been released, they're back in the temple teaching the people again, persuading the people, having influence over the people again. So they round the apostles up again, but this time with their tails between their legs, and now they make the apostles stand on trial a second time. It says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they're saying, hey, we warned you not to speak in that name. And yet you did not listen to us. You filled Jerusalem with the message of Jesus, which is making us look bad because we put him to death. Side note, what a great description of the church here. They filled Jerusalem with the message. That's our call, church. To fill this area with the message of Jesus. To speak forth. To be a people who proclaim, who live out loud what it means to know the truth of the gospel message and to fill it. That's what they're doing here. Everywhere they go in Jerusalem, everybody's talking about this Jesus. Everybody's talking about this one that you guys killed and God brought back to life. And they can't stand for that. And what they're actually mad about, like what are they mad about? And people are getting healed. That's something to be mad about, huh? Um, the church is caring for one another, caring for the poor. Great reputations going out. Why are they so mad about these things? Their anger, their jealousy, and their enrage because their names, their reputation, their popularity, their glory is now on the line. And that's Luke's contrast. He sets it right before us. Where their concern is themselves. The apostles is just the opposite, though. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, what? We must obey God rather than man. 
We've seen this twice now. The apostles' concern is not for themselves, not for their safety. It's for the glory of the Lord and their obedience to Him. And here, brothers and sisters, I, I do think is where the rubber meets the road, we might say, in terms of what it means to be the people of God. This heightened opposition exposes, we might say, a conflict of kingdoms here, centered on the issue of glory and power. As we're in the middle of here following our Bible reading plan, we've been going through 1 Samuel as a church. And in 1 Samuel, uh, this same conflict of kingdom, of glory, of power, is illustrated through the life of King Saul and King David. Saul was a powerful man. 1 Samuel 9, he's described as the most handsome man in Israel and taller, it says, taller from the waist up than any other man in Israel. I joked with my guys in my D group. I don't know what that means. Did he have small legs, short legs or something? He was a, he was a tall man, though. <laughs> I guess he had short legs. But by worldly standards, Saul was a strong man. Saul was a powerful man. And you look to Saul, you thought of worldly power and strength. But then there's David. Rudy, young, overlooked. Shepherd, youngest of the brothers. When Samuel came to, the Lord had told Samuel to anoint one of his brothers as king, and they didn't even bring David in. It can't even be David. They said, do you have any more brothers? He said, yeah, we got one, but he's out there with the sheep. Well, go get him. They didn't even think he was worthy as an option to be anointed king. And yet Saul's power proves impotent on every turn of the narrative. For his concern proves to be himself rather than the Lord. Go back and read 1 Samuel 13-17. through 17. Saul's name, Saul's reputation, Saul's glory were ever before him and they hindered him from experiencing the power of God upon his leadership. And the climax of this comes in the scene of David and Goliath where Saul, this dude who is the tallest and the strongest, the most handsome, the, the guy who epitomizes what it means to be a warrior leader over the people, this dude's left frozen. And the only thing he's doing, he's trying to bribe someone. I'll give you my daughter if you fight the, the Goliath. Though God, he was God's appointed leader, Saul's glory, Saul's reputation, Saul's status, Saul's position was too much for him. It, he proved himself to be impotent. He could not set his glory aside for the glory of the Lord. But where Saul sees the giant as a threat to his glory, little David sees him as a threat to the glory of Yahweh. Right? Instead of cowering in fear, David stands before all the army as his little shepherd boy and he asks the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? David's concern was not for himself, but for the glory of the Lord's name, which allowed David to experience God's power and to slay the giant. Brothers and sisters, I want us to not miss, not forget that the promise of Pentecost might we say the promise of the new covenant to every one of us as believers is one of power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And it's that power which is necessary for us to live the Christian life in general and necessary for us to do ministry together as the church in particular. And it's that power intertwined with, with glory that is it is being contrasted here. Pride, jealousy, selfish ambition, and a concern for oneself cannot take part in God's promised power through the Holy Spirit. 
For that power comes only through us yielding ourselves to the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus. And that demands us demolishing our concern for our own glory. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you must pick up your cross, lay down your life and follow Jesus. You must die to yourself to receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus has for you. But Christians, we're not just, we don't just step by that struggle when we come into the kingdom. As Christians, as New Covenant believers, pride, selfish ambition is what hinders us from walking in the Spirit, from experiencing the power of the new birth on a daily basis, from growing in our sanctifications, from being used by the Lord. We love ourselves. You love yourself as much as I love myself. We want to see our own glory. And that can look a couple ways. That can look like a very arrogant, loud, bombastic personality. That can also look like a person who always walks around saying, I'm not worthy to be used by the Lord. Both are concerned with themselves and not the Lord. We far too often seek our own glory. We love to make things about us. And here's the, the context of the text. It's possible to be doing that very thing and to be doing the things of the Lord and to be just like these religious leaders and be doing all of it for our own glory. It's a dangerous thing. Pride is a very dangerous thing. We can be doing all of these things in the Christian life and be doing them void of any power outside of ourselves. Experiencing the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in salvation and in an ongoing way in our sanctification, our living for Jesus, individually, collectively as a church, demands us confronting our concern for our own self-glory. The apostles' actions here demonstrate their allegiance to God's glory over their own. He says we must obey God rather than man. God has placed governing authorities over us whom we're called to submit to. It's a Christian thing to submit to those in the home, in the church, and in the government. That doesn't mean that we submit when we have a leader that we like. It means we submit to the governing authorities God has put over us. It doesn't mean we submit to them blindly, though, because if and when obeying the governing authorities requires us to disobey the commands of God, we faithfully disobey. That's what the apostles teach us here. Why? Because our primary allegiance is to the glory of God, not our own preservation, not our own status, not our own reputation. And that allegiance is expressed by our commitment to Jesus. And that's what they make clear in their little, in the little mini sermon here in verse 30. It says here, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Verse 31, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 32, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they begin their confession. Remember, these are the religious leaders. By stating how Yahweh 
whom the religious leaders confess to be living in service to, he's the one who's at work in Jesus. So you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting who you say you're serving, Yahweh. He, he raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a tree. And in raising him, he says, God exalted him at the right hand as both leader and savior. Leader here, he's used this word before, it's pioneer, it's, uh, it could be prince, it could be the first one, it's the pioneer, it's the author, it's the savior. And for this, and from that supreme position of authority and power, Jesus offers repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now we could say a lot about this passage, but I do want you to note the Trinitarian language here. The Father's mentioned, the Son's listed, the Holy Spirit's listed. The Father raised Jesus and exalted Him who gives repentance and forgiveness through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And He's saying here that our witness as the church, our witness as the people of God, brothers and sisters, your evangelism, you speaking forth of Jesus, is anchored in that work. It's rather amazing that when we open our lips and testify to the truth of Jesus, we are anchoring what we're doing in the work of the triune God. We're joining ourselves to the work of the triune God in redemptive history. That tells me at least two things. One, we have a message of great assurance. And the assurance of our message that we proclaim of repentance and forgiveness of sin comes not from us. It comes not from the charismatic personality of the one Proclaiming. It comes not from the knowledge that we have in our head. It comes from the exalted, seated Son of God. God exalted Jesus, the text says, to the right hand of authority from which, from that seat, He gives forth repentance and forgiveness. There's no higher authority from which forgiveness, repentance can be given. But this also clarifies our witness. We're called to evangelize, to witness, but we witness, listen to the language here. Maybe we could say we co-witness alongside the person of the Holy Spirit. They say here, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given us to obey. Again, in one sense, that speaks to the incredible significance of our witness. The message we proclaim is tied to the work of, of the triune God. It's in connection with the work of the Holy Spirit. But it also serves as a reminder that our witness is our witness is not what saves people. The work of God in His Son, through the work, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is what saves people. We witness in light of that truth, alongside that truth with assurance of that truth, in accordance to that truth. We witness alongside the witness of the Holy Spirit. So our mission as a church is bound to the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And it involves taking part here in the face of opposition, in this privilege of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness. But this privilege is going to come, it comes with a price. We've already seen that, but we're going to really see that come to a head here in the last couple of verses. And what I see is a kingdom advance here in verses 33 to 42. So since chapter 3, I said we've been witnessing, it's like watching two cars, an inevitable collision headed towards each other. 
You have the, the temple leadership and the apostles. And it finally happens here as the chapter closes out. The depth and the darkness of these religious leaders' heart, the, uh, the, the depth of their pride and jealousy is no longer hidden. It's fully exposed. When they're offered, because that's what's being offered here in the apostles, they're offering them forgiveness and restoration in the name of Jesus, even the way they couch their message that our fathers, whom you put to death, raised him. And he's offered forgiveness, uh, repentance and forgiveness to Israel, he's saying here. He's offering it to them. And when they're offered that message, they respond just as they did to Jesus. When they hear this, they, they were enraged, the text says, and wanted to kill him. However, in verse 34, one steps forward with some words of wisdom, sort of. Uh, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put them in outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, uh, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed uh, him were scattered. So Gamaliel is an honored teacher of the law here. He's trying to bring some sense to the council by way of two well-known examples that they know of. He cautions them. Jewish uprisings were not anything new for, for them in this time. And he cautions them to consider these two men of the past who, who, van, who advanced claims. They won a following, but in the end they were killed and their movement faded away. In light of their failures, he cautions them uh, not to act in haste. Verse 38, so in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men... And let them alone. For if this plan is for this plan, for if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is not of God, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing fighting against God is the word there. So he lays out this really probably something smarter than he even knows is coming out of his lips. But it's also an interesting point here as we're as we're reading the, the gospel, uh, as we're reading the account of Luke acts together. Luke has an audience he's writing to. And Luke is obviously writing to people he wants to come to faith in Jesus, but he's also writing to a, a suffering, persecuted church. And this is encouragement to them. Because what he's saying to them is, we know we're on the side of God. We know that God is on our side. We know we're standing with Him. So his advice is to, to leave the, the church alone. Why? Because... He says, if it's merely a work of man, it's going to be destroyed anyway. But if it's of God, nothing that you can do or I can do is going to be able to stop it. And there's really the divide in the text. Luke's, Luke wants us to see it. It says that they took his advice. Probably took his advice, not that they're going to now become friends with Jesus and stop opposition to Jesus, but friends with him on how to maneuver politically to deal with Jesus because he was a wise man. He was, he was, at least he was high, high, well, well known in the amongst the people. So it says he took their advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, let the, then, then they left the presence of the council, the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, here's the conclusion, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the, that the Christ is Jesus. Now this theme, you remember we began it back in 3, 
talked about the power of the name of Jesus. Remember, that's how uh, the lame man was healed. That phrase came up multiple times when the apostles were put on trial before. They told him, don't speak in that name. He was healed in that name. So this theme of the name of Jesus and the power of the name of Jesus comes full circle here. Twice we see it. The apostles left the presence of the council after being physically beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for that name. That name, Jesus. And by that name, remember the lame man was healed. And by that name, forgiveness and restoration is, is found and is given out. And as we've seen thus far, the, the name of Jesus, it means, we've seen forgiveness, we've seen restoration, we've seen the word freedom, we've seen the word eternal life attached to the name of Jesus. But it also means that these things come by way of the suffering of Jesus. They rejoice because their suffering speaks to their identification with their Savior, whom they understand all the benefits that they receive to have come about. Jesus suffered on the cross. Rejoicing in suffering is a very common theme in the New Testament. Acts chapter 14, Paul will say plainly that it's through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are, are you uh, when, when others revile you or persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. A life of faithful obedience, church, comes with a price. And Luke's saying that. Jesus said that. The rest of our New Testament testifies to that. A church living on mission for Jesus will pay a price in this world. The cross teaches us that. So we're not to be surprised, as our brother James would tell us. But we're to, we're to respond as the early church did here. If we are to respond as the early church did here, we must forever keep our eyes upon the truth of the kingdom that our reward is in heaven. That's what Jesus says. That the sufferings of this life cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. One author says, suffering is one of God's ordained means for the growth of His church. He says, He brought salvation to the world through Christ, the suffering Savior. So now, salvation spreads in the world through Christians as suffering saints. And he quotes uh, 2 Timothy 3, 12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may be, might be, will be, he says, Paul says, will be persecuted. So clearly there's a sense here in Paul's language, the danger of our lives will increase in proportion in terms of the depth of our relationship to Jesus and the more faithful we live for Him. And I do think, I do think there is worth much in considering the response of the apostles and what we can learn from their response. There's much here. And I think we should do that. But I don't think that's Luke's primary concern. The response of the apostles, I don't think, is what Luke wants us to really see. I think divine providence is. The enabling power of the Holy Spirit in, accords to, in accordance to God's divine providence is what's on display here and on every single page of the book of Acts. And that's where our assurance is found, brothers and sisters. Our assurance is not found in the strength of the apostles or in the strength that we might be able to muster up. 
Our assurance is found in the fact that God's divine hand is set upon His people, that His gospel message will not cease. He says here, look at the language at the end. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. God's enabling grace was among them. His sustaining power stayed with them. God is seeing to it that His purposes go forth here. And God's purposes are at work, brothers and sisters, in every age, every nation, every time and place. When we face persecution, we must rely upon God's power. We should continue to speak forth His message of salvation with the clarity that they had. But we must do so trusting in God's divine providence that He will not allow our message to cease. That's the book of Acts. The kingdom advances through the proclamation of the Word and the power of the Spirit under the providential hand of God. So brothers as we, brothers and sisters, as we close out, the ongoing presence of, of, of God upon His people is confirmed in the text. And it's confirmed in the manner in which they, they minister. We see it here. It stays upon them. God's using them and they're ministering humbly, serving. Unlike the prideful religious leaders who are outside of the power of God's work, we have to seek humility in our lives. We have to crush pride in our lives. And pride stems from forgetfulness, brothers and sisters. When I rise up in pride, when I respond, as I often do, in selfish ambition and pride to something, when someone critiques me, and I might, I might be mature enough to keep my face from showing you, but in my heart I'm raging. That's a forgetfulness of the gospel. That I'm a rebel. I deserve God's judgment and sin. But God rescued me. He set me free. And I sin every day and deserve Him to say, I'm done with you, but He continues extending His enabling and sustaining grace in my life. Humility is found there, brothers and sisters. Let that mark us as a church. And as we minister for Jesus, as we proclaim the message, there's a price. We will suffer. And we rely upon God's power. And we do reject pride. And we do so being concerned not with our glory, but for the glory of the Lord. We live for the glory of our King by proclaiming His message of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. It's a full text, Lord. I feel like we left a lot on the table there. It should have been said, could have been said, but God, by your Holy Spirit, we trust that you will use this text beyond this morning, throughout this week, to uh, remind us, show us, strengthen us, encourage us, grow us as a church. God, do help us fight pride. Help me fight, fight pride. And Lord, we need each other for pride. <laughs> the one thing we often can't see clearly is our own pride. So God, we need the eyeballs of other brothers and sisters. Might we be faithful to lean into the beautiful blessing of the body of Christ. Help us to fight worldly desires and pursuing passions that are not of the Lord and to be humble. Don't let us be a Saul. Let us be a David. And ultimately a David that leads us to Jesus who laid down his life for his people. God, we help us to go low that we might be able to experience your power in our lives. And help us to recognize the great privilege it is with the message we have to speak. Let us do it with 
confidence. Because it's a message that you have given. You've accomplished it and you've given it through your son. Let us speak forth it with boldness, with clarity, and with humility as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.